If you're someone who has a passion for cut flowers, our environment, and wants to make the world more beautiful, you're in the right place. Whether you're growing flowers for pleasure or profit, I'm on a mission to empower flower enthusiasts and professionals to help change the world around them. Whether you're just starting out and need a helping hand, or are looking to scale a substantial flower business, I'm your cut flower woman. Welcome to the Cut Flower Podcast. Hello everyone, please allow me to introduce Sally Morgan to you. She's an experienced no-dig gardener, a writer of many books of which we will talk about today, a journalist and an editor, so I'm absolutely delighted to introduce Sally to you. So Sally, tell us about your journey and how you came to where you are, the work that you do. Why? What's your why? Where did it all begin? Brilliant. Well, thank you very much, Ros, for inviting me today. Um, I have a, a sort of interesting background. I'm not your classic sort of stuck in growing and horticulture for my entire life. Um, I went to Cambridge and did uh, natural sciences, and I specialised at the end with botany, part two. So I met some fabulous ecologists who really inspired me. Um, so I started in ecology, and then I fell into teaching. And then I started writing. And from that point on, I've always gardened, but um, the writing and photography, particularly, I was an environmental environmental photographer and run a photo library for many years. Wow. And so writing and photography fell into my lap. <laughs> and it's here I am how, today. <laughs> it's funny how we go on different paths, didn't you? So I did environmental science as a degree which in the 80s was unheard of. I mean, I only did it because I couldn't get into medical school and the three A-levels added up. And I went, oh, I'll go and do this environment. I don't know what that is, but it sounds good. I can be outside. And I did that for three years. And when I qualified or graduated, I didn't. there were no jobs in environmental, as you can imagine. It was just like, oh, what are we going to do now? So I left it completely, went off and did something completely different, marketing, sales, travel, came back round again. And now I'm back in the environment sector in terms of, very aware of it but I mean what we were saying 30 40 years ago is exactly what we're saying today so it's kind of like it hasn't really moved on oh god you you've obviously been listening to some of my talks um yeah uh, I exactly the same I wanted to be a vet um but I didn't do latin at school so I couldn't do veterinary science so I thought I'd go to uni switch to veterinary science after a couple of years and get in the back way and, and plants grabbed me and ecology. And, and actually, I did a lot of work with the Surrey Wildlife Trust initially. But in those days, there's very few jobs, um, no money. And yeah. um, so I went into teaching, which is a reliable profession. Um, and so, yeah, much the same. But I, I get totally depressed when I look at what I wrote in the 1990s, the time of um, the first you know, Earth Days and things like that. It, it's all the same. So we've lost sort of 40 years of adaptation and changing, which is oh, so depressing in many ways. So, yeah, oh, I empathise completely. Well, <laughs> dissertation on nitrates in fertilisers and how they leached into rivers. And I remember going to a river in the middle of the night, taking samples and then running back to the laboratory and thinking I was really cool. And... And I look at that now, it's exactly the same. It's like it hasn't really yeah. moved on. So it's kind of like, ah, yeah, quite sad. And, and um, I started off in my initial research looking at quarry restoration. And I was growing climbing plants in recycled waste, quarry waste aggregate. 
And here I am, <laughs> I won't mention how many years later, um, and, rest- and using aggregate, recycled aggregates in gardens and brownfield gardening is is all in. And I was sort of thinking, where have you been for 40 odd years? <laughs> so to, I did this, you know, ages ago, I wrote the book, you know, sort of wrote the, wrote the paper, um, did the thesis, you know, and here we are. <laughs> you wonder in another 40 years where we're going to be. I'll be 100 in another 40 years. I hope I'm still around in another 40 years. But I hope I'm not going to be sitting here in 40 years going, well, you know what, we still haven't come anywhere in 40 years. That would be even more depressing. <sighs> So, oh, yeah. totally. I, I, yeah. Um, but I think, you know, you and France at the moment, Italy particular, with the plus 40 degrees centigrade, you know, y- you will not want to be there in 40 years' time if we do not sort it out. It'd be like living in the Sahara Desert. Um, yeah. and, and I think this is a big wake-up call for us at the moment in Europe. You know, these temperatures, we're not even into August and we have these temperatures. So. I think that's it. I think Absolutely. I read somewhere, and we, we can talk about this. I think I read somewhere that in 2050, the UK is going to have the climate of Barcelona. So we all have moved that far yep. south in 2050. So between now and 2050, we're yep. already moving that way. It's frightening. T- totally. And, and actually, even more worrying to think about that in Essex at the moment, the annual rainfall, which is the normal annual rainfall, is less than Rome already so add a little bit of heat to that and you've got quite um an interesting scenario yeah completely different habitat what we do for rainfall what we do for water i mean as a flower farmer we're already seeing it we're already seeing like okay let's talk about rainwater harvesting and what are flower farmers in the uk going to be growing in 10 years time or even five years or even next year to be completely honest if i look now about the amount of watering we have to do we're already starting to think, okay, well, what can we plant that's actually okay with this? You know, and, and there are so many species which are not okay with this. So, yeah, it's quite interesting. Interesting times. Interesting times are very depressing. So you've written lots of books. Tell us about your books. Tell, tell us about your first one before we move on to the exciting one. Um, yeah, well, writing was quite a while ago. So I've done hundreds of children's nonfiction books. So these are little books. They're only... 20, 48 pages um, for Key Stage 2, 3, 4. So that's my bread and butter for many years, um, natural history, science, um, and any old geography and anything else I could write about that use my skills as a writer and a photographer. Um, but I have done um, Julia's Guide and Encyclopedia of Ocean Life, and then I did one on Encyclopedia of Butterflies and Moss. Um and then as I moved more and more to what I wanted to write about rather than what the publisher wanted me to write about, um, I did well, my first key book, which was Living on an Acre, which is self-sufficiency, um, showing people that you could be pretty self-sufficient in such small spaces. You didn't need 15 acres of farmland. You could do it all in one acre, um, grow the veg, grow the flowers, grow bio- um, wood, keep chickens, keep um, pigs grow fruits and things. You could really be quite sufficient, um, self-sufficient in that space. So I had a one acre plot here on the farm because I'm in Somerset. So I've got an organic farm and I had this test plot and the book came out the back of that. Um, but organics has always been me and I, I listen to lots of people. I'm sure everybody does um, listen to inspiring people. And so I started on the next book, um, which came out a couple of years ago, which is uh, The Healthy Veg Garden. And that is me thinking about soils, soil life, 
um, the importance of biodiversity in the garden because I, I love permaculture and that area of my ecology, of course, coming out of getting that diversity into my own growing spaces and how we can improve our own growing spaces in terms of that biodiversity, looking at natural predators, how we get them into the garden, um, and then really thinking about roots and, and trees and how that all knits together to create a, a wonderful ecology in your own spaces. So that was really fun to do before I I tackled the latest. The latest thing we're going to talk about now, which is obviously I've ordered and I've read. Um, it's a new book. We're going to say why, why. I mean, obviously, the, the acre I get on self-sufficiency, and and that's exactly what we did. We bought a plot, and um, it was over an acre, but the, actually, we don't use most of it because we've got five acres. But we don't even flower farmers don't need five acres. Flower farmers need an acre yeah. of intensive farming. Um, we don't grow over five acres. You know, you'd, it'd be massive to be able to do that. And mm. so, yeah, we have the chickens and we have the goats and we have the pigs and we are fairly self-sufficient. So, but there's always more we could do. You know, I, I tend to forget vegetables and tend to grow more flowers than I do vegetables because obviously that's my livelihood. But we could very easily be very self-sufficient on an acre. So the new book, tell us about the new book, which I've ordered. And it's, yeah, tell us about it. Brilliant. So this is written with Kim Stoddard, um, who's also a garden writer. <clears throat> and both Kim and I, um, we met back in, well, I just turned up in her place one day and I said to Kim, I'm going to come and have a look at your garden because she was writing about it. And um, she was at the time the Garden Organic editor for their uh, magazine. So I, I fronted up and we had a long chat that turned into about a five hour chat um, from a, a quick coffee to five hours wandering around her plot. And we were looking at climate change and what was happening. And Kim was writing about climate savvy gardening. I've been writing about climate change and global warming, as we used to call it, um, for kids and examining for kids. And, and so I felt um, that there was an awful lot of books around on global warming, um, but not really about on the level that we were at. And I always feel as gardeners and growers, we're at that front edge, that we're the ones which are experiencing at first. We're in such close contact with our plants and we know what's happening around and we could feel that changes were happening. But nobody was really telling us how to adapt. It was a little bit about water saving, um, but 1976 was a long way back in the memory and I hadn't really moved on since then, although I did experience it. Um, <laughs> and so we got frustrated, <laughs> really frustrated. So we just sort of sat down that day and said, right, let's write a book. Um, and we did. Um, Kim took some chapters, I took others to reflect our personal interests. And, and Kim is probably more on veg and, well, we're both into wildlife, but she likes veg. I like thinking about trees and ornamental gardens and things. And we're both into the soil. Um, so the book evolved from that. And we did find um, American publishers last year. So it's been produced in the States and is published in both sides of the pond, which is fun. Mm -hmm. um, and so it really tackles from a gardener's perspective what's happening and what you can do on a garden level. Um, so we look at too much, too little water, um, ways that you can design your garden, which aren't necessarily expensive. Um, I love talking about permeable, so the water sinks rather than uh, floods. Um, and then we looked at um, 
areas of wildlife, bringing diversity into the garden, what you can do about your vegetables, your greenhouses, body tunnels. Um, we think about trees, orchards particularly, and uh, and then into the ornamental gardens and, and what might happen. But it is really us thinking about resilience in those spaces, uh, not necessarily yet planting your drought-tolerant garden. Um, I think that's a little way down the road because – Last winter, what did we have? We had mild, wet winter followed by extreme cold back to wet. And plants have got to be pretty resilient to cope with those topsy, I like to call it topsy-turvy weather. Because at the moment, while the carbon dioxide levels are still increasing, we're not going to level off just yet. We're still in those turbulent times. The weather doesn't know what's happening. We don't know what's happening. The weather's no better. Um, and so we really need resilient gardens, adaptability. And I think drought tolerance is something to think about. We can talk about that later. But I think at the moment, we just need those plants which are resilient and can cope with whatever the weather throws at it for now, um, before we start experimenting too much. Um, unless you live in Essex, <laughs> in which case you're way ahead of the curve and you've had a dry summer and, um, and very low water supplies already. So um, different parts of the country are going to be affected in different ways. So that's where the book came yeah. from. Um, it was us really wanting to drive the conversation and they're oh, all catching very, up now. <laughs> really, really conversational. I mean, I, I look at what we grow and I look around and I read something that because the CO2 levels are still increasing, that this year our plants have grown taller for some reason. And that some of it could be down to obviously CO2 levels. So that's interesting. Mm-hmm. And if they grow taller, does that mean they're going to be weaker? And then the, the other thing is that, yeah, that cold snap got us all. You know, those pittosporum that are really a little bit tender, that five-day period is what we're really talking about, killed them, killed all of them. Eucalyptus, all gone. You know, some may come back. You know, we cut them all the way down, but eucalyptus is an Australian plant, cannot mm. cope with that massive amounts of cold for that period of time. They're, they're resilient to a point, so if you've got them in early enough and they've got enough roots, they might come back. But kind of like... And then you kind of didn't have much rain in the winter. And then we're going into, you know, you think about, I think about tulips. We planted some mad amount of tulips, 30,000 of the things in November. And we planted late because it wasn't that cold. So then we're looking, oh, okay, we'll keep going, keep going. So then they were later. And then you put them in. And then you've got to water them in February because actually we didn't have any rain. So it's like, hold on a minute. This is madness. Tulips, you know, need to be well hydrated. I get that. But the fact we're watering them in February was a bit odd. So I think we are going to have to adapt completely in everything we grow. Mm. And I don't think, like you, I don't think we're drought resistant yet, but I don't think we're an enormous way off it. We're off more resilience, I think, what can cope. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting you raise tulips um, because I talk about tulips a lot in my talks and things um, because along with um, fruit trees, um, top fruits, they have a chill requirement in order for that flowering cycle to be correct. And they're having problems in Europe because the winters are too mild and they don't have enough hours where the temperatures are below seven degrees C, but above freezing. We call it a chill hour. And it's critical for trees, um, particularly fruit trees and tubes, to tulips to accumulate a certain number of chill hours. And if they don't, they get very confused. 
and they don't know when to flower correctly. And it's a natural mechanism to stop them flowering in early in February when we might have had a warm spell. So they know they haven't had enough chill, don't flower yet. But when we get these weird winters, they get very confused. They also get slowed down in cold, wet soils, which are waterlogged when it's too wet. Um, but over in Holland, in is it Kuchenhof Gardens, they are planting 30% more tulips every year compared to 20 years ago in order to ensure that there is a floral display when the visitors come. So with my tulips now, and actually was nattering to Sarah Mead up at Yo Valley about her tulip displays and things, and, and I just said, pop them in your fridge, pop them in a chiller. When you get your tulip bulbs, keep them really chilled under seven in a chiller. I've got a walk-in chiller and I'm sure many flower farmers have got walk-in chillers or something like that. Pop your tulips as soon as you get them, pop them into a chilled space. So you're accumulating some hours before they even go in the ground. And then that will help. And you need to keep your tulips in the coldest place in the garden, not in a shelter spot that doesn't get to low seven, but perhaps in a more exposed spot, they're going to get that chill. Um, And it may be that in a few years' time, the tulip supplier, the bulb suppliers are actually doing pre-chilled bulbs so that we get around this problem. No problem with your daffs. They don't care. Um, (laughs) But your crocuses and your hyacinths do, all the same family, um, and your fruit trees do. So can't do much about fruit trees, but with chill hours, you might want to, going forwards, if you're planting a new orchard soon or putting some buying, buying a fruit tree, they take eight to 10 years to mature. So I would want buy one that has no number of chill hour requirements, which will be something from further south. So um, we're lucky. Bramleys are okay. They only need 400 chill hours, whereas a damson um, and a plum might need 1,100 hours. So they're something for Scotland. But for me in Somerset, I'm looking to France, Normandy, Brittany, thinking of varieties that cope with low requirements for chill. Um, and so it might mean that local, it's difficult to get my head around this, local is not always the best variety in a climate changing world. No, I absolutely agree with you. I did a course in America about tulips and what they do, um, because they want their tulips to come early, they want to force spring. So they want their tulips in, in December and January in order to get a longer season. And they buy pre-chilled tulip bulbs. They buy five weeks or nine weeks. Mm-hmm. So they've been chilled for five weeks or nine weeks. And the thing about that is that you look at all that and then they've got chilling period. And I looked at it at the chart the other day and I was thinking that chilling period isn't long enough. Hold on a minute. What are we going to do about mm-hmm. this? And actually, you're right. As soon as you get tulip bulbs straight into a chiller, because this is going to be an issue. This is really going to be an issue. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure how the rest of Europe and how we're going to cope with getting our bulbs from Holland is actually going to work. Um, so that could a whole uh, industry. You may stay with us. We'll be right back. A small business. Do reels get you reeling? Is SEO just a three letters put together? Content planning something you know you should be doing, but just never get round to it. Do join our growth club online. What is it? It's a supportive community. It's all about growing your business. It provides trainings and guest speakers join us every month. Is it time to work on your business and not in it? The link for more information is in the show notes. 
Yeah. You may want to look at varieties and whether you are going more for a late, I know it's not great, but a late flowering variety because you've got more weeks to achieve the chill. Um, and interestingly, I was looking at the wholesale catalogs this year and they've got more tulip species um, for naturalizing and things in the garden rather than planting up containers. So that's a part sustainability, plant part sort of um, looking forward. But um, increasingly, I think they're not for cut flowers, unfortunately, but a species is more adaptable and will naturalize in your garden and, uh, and hopefully cope with the variety of temperatures it might get. Um, but yeah, some of those early flowering tulip bulbs, you know, it's, it's, it's a balance at the best of times, but not when we get a mild, wet winter. So yeah, big issues <laughs> for you, I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's how we're adapting. And trees, like you say, looking for fruit tree varieties, look south, go south see where our variety is mm. and you know maybe the varieties we're growing now mm. won't be the variety we're growing in 10 years so yeah. and and it's also root stocks um in this country we're very conservative when it comes to root stocks we look at the malling root stocks so you know m106 m25 whatever but you know those go back probably i can't remember when they started grafting trees but i suspect it's you know 50 60 70 years ago we're still using them and it's not the environment that they were designed to be used in and we're not looking at some of the eastern european rootstocks or the american rootstocks that might suit us that are more resilient to drought in summer so we we've got to be quite experimental on all fronts and this is an area that i i just feel that there's not enough voices in it at the moment, and I'm not sure what the researchers are doing. I hope they're doing something, um, but I don't read much about it. So, fingers crossed. No, I haven't seen a lot. I haven't seen a lot. I think the only person I've spoken to is Hilary at Hardy Eucalyptus, and we've talked about the fact that eucalyptus picking season is September, well, really October to March. And actually, that's not really where we want it. Please, we'd like a picking season between March and September because, you know, every bride that walks down the aisle wants mm -hmm. eucalyptus. And eucalyptus in the UK is a winter plant. So she has been experimenting with different eucalyptus that can, that can actually thrive in the summer. And it's kind of some research at least is going on, well, you know, what about the heat and what about the climate and how are we going to cope mm -hmm. with that? And, but I don't, honestly, like you, I don't see a lot going on. No, it's it's up to us, I think, to be a bit more experimental. Um, it's difficult, you know, now because with the plant passport situation, it's not so easy to bring in new stock and that is restricting. Otherwise, I would be bringing in fruit trees from um, Switzerland or somewhere like that where there's a lot of research going on, but that that input um, imports have been squashed but um it's it we do need to look to the east who do have that dry hot summer weather where plants can cope um, can cope with cold winters so it we need to little you know need to look overseas um but then you sort of have this problem with plant disease and everything else that goes with that so it's it's tricky um to different areas but it's something we've all got to be aware of and i think we can all do that um you know bramley's spartan apples are fine but maybe you want to choose a local variety so if you live in the midlands i'll be looking for fruit trees that would grow in somerset and devon and and if you're in scotland you're okay because you can grow yeah. anything that comes from we'll england and it will be fine yeah. in scotland <laughs> funny flower farmers you know that are on our courses before that come from scotland I've always found it quite difficult because their season is different to ours. But actually, you look now and you think, mm, maybe they got it right. <laughs> maybe we should be moving to Scotland. 
<laughs> yeah, no, there, there is one advantage on the horizon. <laughs> Things that we can all do. We know climate change. I mean, I think it's easy. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's easy things, fortunately. Um, I start with the soil. Um, like everybody, the soil is your most important asset in the garden um, and you need to look after it. And and I think that clearly we've got to get into, I know it upsets a lot of traditional gardeners, but no dig is best. Um, the minimising the soil to start with, um, not just because every time you turn the soil, you expose that organic matter that you've worked so hard to capture in your soil is exposed to the atmosphere and you lose it in carbon dioxide. Um, but equally, as we know more about the soil life and the importance of fungi and the relationship between our plants and fungi in the soil and that amazing fungal network that all the plants are in connection with each other, every time you shove the fork in, you are disturbing those fungal networks. And in a warm summer, um, the plants that have mycorrhizal fungi are relying on those fungi to take up water from wider area than their own roots can reach. And so any disturbance means those plants have less of a um, reach in the soil via their fungi. So that's, that's key. Also, I always get a bit upset about worms and things when I see soil turned over. So I think keeping the soil as undisturbed as possible and just composting on top to give the nutrients from the top, as you would expect in a natural system. Um, and then it is this good old mulching. Um, and I'm sure everybody, you know, we've been mulching like mad for the last few years to keep that water in the soil so that it doesn't evaporate, um, to provide shelter from the sun. So it's not just the heat and everything, but the sun, the ultraviolet lights on, on soil life to keep them protected um, and to mulch, mulch, mulch. And that could be organic matter, your own um, compost. It could be grass clippings that you've dried off. So it's a bit sort of crumbly over the soil. Old leaves will be great. Um, and then, of course, obviously gravel, which is coming into its own at the moment. Um, I've been using quite a lot of strolch, the mineralized right. straw stuff, um, to suppress the um, the weeds and the slugs, hopefully, because I had quite a few of those at the beginning of the year. <laughs> They've all disappeared. Yeah, they're and they're not, actually, they're all, they're coming back. <laughs> they're very resilient. They're coming back. One rainfall, and there we go again. But that seems to be quite good. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm protecting and minimal disturbance. And then obviously all the other areas of saving as much water as you can um, in water harvesting systems because water will get more expensive as we go forward. I mean, we've seen energy prices rise, but when I talk to guys who live in California, their water prices are astronomical. So we will get that in the coming years as water becomes such a precious resource. Um, and it's simple things, you know, water butts everywhere, divert us off your downpipes. Not actually, and the other thing is not letting your surface water go off into the drains because that's what causes flooding in extreme weather events, um, but keeping all that water as much as you can on your own plots. So if you've got one water butt, I'd like to see four, <laughs> sort of yeah. that, that level of increase, I think. Um, and you can actually buy cheap water butts from your local water company for about £10 each. So absolutely no excuse. Um, save as much as possible. And then we have to think about, and particularly new housing, uh, grey water cap capture and use of grey water in the gardens for non-edibles, um, rather than seeing it disappear down the drain, having to be treated and, and all that that entails. So very simple things we can all do. 
and the other the other thing which we sort of all forget about, but actually last year may have been a wake up call for a lot of people in their gardens which had a south facing patio. I think they got rather hot last year. So I think shade is another thing we need to plan for the future. You know, so many of our gardens are open, uh, very little natural shade. I mean, plants need shading as well as the soil. Um, And so to think about shade on the walls of your houses, in your garden, casting that little bit of cooling area um, onto your houses, particularly will stop you doing the air conditioning in the future and, and adapting to some of those Mediterranean ideas of clothing the walls, small windows and planting for shade um, so you can scurry off and when it hits 40 and sit in the shade under the transpiring tree that's going to keep you cool. Yeah, we <laughs> so have just a, a few we things. Have a, we have a south facing at, um, and yeah, a boiling and we call it the Mediterranean garden because that's all that would ever grow in it. So it's kind of like <laughs> your agapanthus and your kind of Mediterranean plants because it's so hot so hot so you could shade you it's not soil you wouldn't put soil there it's just too hot um but yeah i'm a great stulch fan by the way have it everywhere um and quite a thick layer of it to to reduce watering and also like say to reduce slugs i mean and apparently it works for two years so i'm i'm keeping them up to that so if it lasts for two years that would be fab but i'm a great believer in that Grass clippings I haven't used, but that's interesting, drying them out and then using them and leaf mould and all of that sort of thing. That's the next thing we should do. But And also I was thinking about on a polytunnel, you can obviously have um, collect water. You can collect water by having a gutter along the polytunnel. So there's all sorts of things we're going to add in, but we are going to have to rain the pool to harvest much more, for sure. Mm. Stay with us. We'll be right back. The new Plants of Distinction Autumn Catalogue is now available and contains over a thousand different flower and vegetable seeds with over 150 new and exciting varieties added this year alone. Cut flowers in an extensive array of individual colours are a speciality and added to this are many unusual annual and perennial seeds together with the hard to find heritage favourites. So if you're looking for something little different be it choice cutting flowers suitable for both fresh and dried arrangements or cottage garden and container growing varieties, you need look no further. You can download or request a copy of the new autumn catalogue by visiting the website plantsofdistinction.co.uk where an exclusive 30% discount is available to all podcast listeners when ordering seeds by using the discount code CUTFLOWER. 30. I mean, the other, the other thing I didn't, the other thing I didn't mention, which is really easy is, you know, in your vegetable garden or indeed in my polytunnel when I used to have one is I used to plant tall plants for shade to shade other plants. Um, so I grow a lot of tree spinach, the one with the purpley leaves, um, casts a nice dapple shade over things. I grow a lot of sunflowers, not just for the sunflowers, but to cast that shade so I'm orientating them to the south of the veg um, and in the polytunnel where it gets mm, very, very hot, um, I would have tall tree spinach in front of my sp- my tomatoes to cast a little bit of shade in the heat of the day. So the little things, very easy to achieve and lovely to give you a, the garden a bit more of a 3D feel to it, but actually quite important to, to shade your plants as well as yourselves. <laughs> <laughs> so... 
if you weren't doing this, what was your childhood dream? Then it was to be a vet, was it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I loved animals. Um, I grew up with grandfathers who were gardeners, vegetable gardeners, um, which was lovely, actually. You know, so I'm, and I'm sure you're the same that, you know, as a child that loved eating spinach and picking runner beans and things. Um, but yes, I, I fancied being a vet, but I couldn't do it because Latin got in the way <laughs> or not. <laughs> it's not a case anymore. Um, so yes, I would have loved to have done that. Um, but plants really grabbed me in ecology, particularly. Um, it was a good way to be outside in summer because, and that's why teaching appealed because I had long summer holidays. Um, <laughs> so I need to be outside. You know, I'm one of those people of the sun shining. I need to be out there doing something, um, which is nice about writing because I can write when it's in the evening or the morning and I can flex my time around the garden and um, get my hours in and then just work in the evening because I don't really mind what time of day I work um, and uh, be able to get too many ultraviolet lights probably but uh, <laughs> um, it, it's something for me to be outside it's that's where my 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 good spot is like many of us I'm sure absolutely so who inspires you then why do you do all this who's your um, inspiration yeah. Yeah, back at uni, um, I think one of the most inspiring guys I ever met there was Oliver Rackham, who was um, ecologist, historian, uh, countryside historian, um, who used to take us off on field trips and make us all lie under the trees and look up at the tree mosaic and, and learn about trees and their relationship with their surroundings. And, um, you know, I, I still sort of think about those days now, which are lovely. Um, but in growing, um, I was a real Gertrude Jekyll fan uh, as a, a new gardener. Um, she lived local. I was in um, Beckenham in South London, and she was not that far away down in Surrey at Munstead Woods. So um, that was one inspiration. And then in more recent years, um, my love of potages came on a visit to Rosemary Vary's garden, of course, at Barnsley House. And, and I saw the potager there and I went straight home. We had three acres at the time and I dug up half the field and put a potager in. Um, and, and that's sort of where the, the real sort of d desire to grow vegetables, ornamental plants together uh, in my polycultures. Um, and then I would say more recently, um, I was totally inspired by an American soil scientist called Elaine Ingham. Um, soil life and food webs and things, who is totally inspirational. And I've never been in a room with or growers and farmers, and she spoke to a hundred of us, to have us all gobsmacked at the end of her session. It was absolutely um, riveting. So if anybody's listening, if you've not heard of Elaine Ingham, listen to some of her webinars on soil and, and life and how to work it. It's um absolutely phenomenal so yeah some some names to look out for there i did uh, i did do a, pod, a podcast with michael kennard and he was um the compost club down in brighton and he followed her and that's what started him off so he mm. now collects food waste from brighton homes and then turns it into compost he's quite an inspirational guy he grows at lewis football club for instance and tries to get football is interested in gardening and then gardeners interested in football and he's just like this whole sort of yeah if you haven't listened to the podcast he follows that whole food web and soil and he was really mm. inspirational I was thinking wow you know this is just the beginning so yeah that was quite quite interesting <laughs> so 
any podcasts or books you'd recommend? What would you take to a desert island? Oh, you shouldn't shouldn't ask me that. I could be here all day on that. Um, podcasts, actually, I don't listen to, sorry, I don't listen to a huge number of podcasts, although I do listen to Garden Organic. Um, actually, what I like listening to are webinars because, you know, since COVID, we have all these Zoom meetings, which is fabulous. And I started listening to the Kew Gardens series of public lectures which they do every month. And they have some really great people on that. And you pay Fiverr or something to listen. And, and I came across um, a guy called Henrik Sojman, who is a Swedish tree geek, um, who's looking at trees for the future and how we grow trees in climate change times. And he's got some fabulous web webinars and books and lecture series and things. And he's truly a great guy to listen to what to plan for the future. And I, I really listen to a lot what he does. Um, and on the books, I'm, I'm quite a fan of Michael Phillips, who's an American author who wrote The Holistic Orchard um, and I think The Mycorrhizal Planet. And he's very much into soil as well. You can see it's a, a recurring theme here of soil. Um, and, and of course, um, Merlin Sheldrake, you know, when he's talking about fungi, is absolutely amazing um, on, on his book. So I tend to look for people who are talking about soil. Um, I'm a bit biased, but the publishers, Chelsea Green, who I have written for, um, do a lovely lot of books all on soil and farming and, and some really inspirational people. And then there's one, if, you, if you're interested in your food, um, and how you relate to food and how animals relate to the plants that they eat. There's an amazing book called Nourishment by Fred Provenza, uh, again, an American author, who's looking at how we've lost our natural instincts of what foods to eat. And when we're feeling ill, should we be eating different foods? It's like um, he, he notes how wild animals know which foods to eat, which ones to avoid, how their diet changes when they're not feeling 100% and how we get um, herbal lays and things and herbal trees and hedgerows and how animals can self-medicate. And, and, and that's fascinating if you're into food forests and things, um, how you can really retrain your body to have more relationship with the foods and the fungi and the microbes that we eat on our foods because we all evolve to suit our gut biomes and our gut biomes is often um, related to the food that we eat, particularly us who grow our own food. Our guts are adapting to the soil in which we grow our food, which is, it's just a fascinating thing to think about, oh, that whole <laughs> um, gut which is why I get excited. Yeah. Isn't it? That whole <laughs> gut microbe situation is quite a big thing at the moment. I mean, there's the whole Zoe thing, isn't it? And there's the whole, what you eat yeah. and what your gut microbes yeah. are like and that we've over-processed eating food and all of that. And I'm really into that. So I go with you. If it comes out of the soil, so what happens there and how do we treat our soil? And we're back to sort of the whole cycle again. But, yeah, yes, I'm a real book lover. So this is really awful talking to you because that, that'll be have me ordering all these books. I'm a real sort of, yeah, I acquire them, shall we say. So, yeah. Mm. Yes, thank you for that. Um, any future plans? <laughs> What's next? Another book? What, what comes next? A TV series? Um, radio program? Yeah, I would, I would hope there is a book there. Um, at the moment, I'm doing something slightly different, which might interest some. Um, okay, no, with Chelsea Green, um, they are such brilliant publishers without being too biased um, because they're employee-owned as well. 
Um, and I'm actually acting as one of their freelance scouts looking for new talent um, to write for Chelsea Green. Um, and so I'm looking at talking to some really inspirational people that people have inspired me um, who are relatively new to perhaps the gardening arena, but um, have some amazing stories to tell and some great books to write. So for the time being, I'm thinking about what other authors might suit. So I'm sort of looking to um, to commission a series of innovative garden books, which I would like to read, and hopefully others will too, um, that will inspire people, but also look forward. So things around the brownfield gardening, which excites me so much. Um, yeah. We had a house built here, a new house on one of our farm buildings. And um, so I'm now attached to my wall garden rather than being 50 metres away from my garden. And um, we used all of the recycled materials from the old barns that were knocked down to clear some land. And so I've got lots of concrete, crushed concrete and uh, rubble which I'm growing in at the moment in a brownfield site, um, very much like NEP, the new NEP garden that people may have visited or uh, like the Beth Chateau Gardens where they built yep. uh, on uh, concrete crush on the car park um, or indeed um, John Little's Brownfield Garden in Essex. So I'm experimenting with uh, concrete waste and I'm planting straight into that with 10% soil or 20% soil. So I'm doing a lot of perennial planting, perennial veg and, and drought planting. And so I'm looking for authors um, who write around that type of thing um, that will be on the front of the curve going forwards that will excite people um, and get them intrigued and resilient for the future. Um, and I think it has to be all about sustainable gardening and resilient gardening because we will be challenged in the years to come with yeah. failures because I think as gardeners we see it all and we have to be prepared that sometimes we have lots of failures and we need to be able to adapt and learn from that so looking at new building materials not making your own potting composts and not using peat of course and things like that um, is what I, I get quite excited about and hopefully can find some new authors who have that enthusiasm um, well, for the next generation of gardeners. Yeah, absolutely. I did go to the American Association of Cut Flower Growers last year, in fact, in August last year, which was really interesting because they're kind of a little bit ahead of the curve on lots of things. And I listened to a speaker who had developed a flower farm in a car park. Mm. And it was really interesting because it was really micro and it was sort of like employing local people. And it was, he was really quite, I must dig his name out because I thought, gosh, how can you do that in a car park? And sort of, and, and I've, followed quite a lot of people on Instagram who are new home builders and when they've got there they moved into new homes and when they've got there they found they've got concrete and how did they deal with that and how they build a garden around a, a small space and a heap of concrete so I think it's it's yeah I'll have to dig my brain out and see that's what I tend to do I tend to follow people on Instagram which is obviously where I found you Sally and um with common sort of interests and think okay this is really inspiring so yeah I'm going to dig my brain around that one there's the <laughs> Definitely, I'm writing a book at the moment. It's not rele relevant, but I'm going to do something around the business of flower farming going forward because lots, lots of people have flower farms but actually are not profitable and don't make any money out of them because it's not, they don't treat it like a business. It's a business, it's truly a business. And if it's going to be a business, then it has to both fulfill you and be profitable. So, um, and there's not a lot out there. So from my sort of marketing sales background, that's fine. But 
I shall keep my eye out. I will come across people, I'm sure. Uh, I should let you know. So I'd love to thank you for joining us. I could talk all day. I could talk all day about soil. I could talk all day about the fact we haven't really moved on in 40 years um, and where we're going to be in another 40 years. And I'm off to look at trees that we can actually, fruit trees that are actually in the future. Because, you know, to be fully grown, like you said, it's going to take 10 years. So we need to think about this now because in 10 years' time, we are definitely going to be in a Mediterranean climate. So, and lots of people can see, you know, great um, benefits to that. I mean, it's going to be warmer. We're going to use less electricity. So there are some benefits, but the, the downside of the habitat and the way we actually live is going to be enormous. Mm. So mm, lots to think about. So thank you very much for joining me. I really appreciate it. No, it's been good fun. And, and it's nice to talk to somebody who knows exactly where we're coming from. It's uh, it knows there's a problem. So brilliant. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much, Sally. I look forward to next week's episode. Please don't forget to subscribe and rate and review on your podcast app. We do have some wonderful free resources on our website at thecutflowercollective.co.uk. We also have two free Facebook communities, which we'd love you to join. For farmers or those who want to be flower farmers, we have Cut Flower Farming, Growth and Profit in Your Business. And our other free Facebook group is Learn with the Cut Flower Collective for those starting out on their flower journey. All of the links are below. I look forward to getting to know you all.